0: Good afternoon. I'm Ann Mossett from the Opera House and it's my pleasure to welcome you and our guest this afternoon, Alexander McCall-Smith, to this talk in our Ideas at the House series. So it's a great pleasure to welcome him to the stage in a year where he's published eight new books to come and talk to us about as many of them as we can fit in this afternoon. Alexander McCall-Smith.
1: Thank you, Ron.
2: Thank you.
0: We're talking this afternoon, uh, Alexander is going to give us all the news from everywhere, um, which I think means that we're going to try and go from Regensburg to uh, Botswana to London to Scotland. But before we do that, I don't know, uh, I have a, want to uh, ask uh, about something that is completely off the topic because I came across uh, 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 some of your Twitter, your tweets earlier oh, right. in the day, oh, and I just wanted to say how beautiful and poetic they were. Those of you who haven't read them, tell us about why, why, uh, why you have become a Twitter person.
1: I was told to. <laughs> <laughs> my my um, publishers in, in New York said um, everybody has to tweet uh, these days, and uh, if you don't, you're, you're regarded as tremendously old-fashioned and uh, not in touch with the, uh, with the social media. So I said, uh, okay. And so I, I, I signed up for, for Twitter, and uh, I quite enjoy it. I don't, I don't say very much. Well, you can't say very much on, on Twitter. You can just give very laconic messages in telegraphies. Mm. Uh, and uh, so I, I, I do that. Um, and then I found that I quite quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed reading other people's uh, mm. tweets, uh, because as you know, you can you can reciprocate uh, signing, and, and you get some very peculiar things uh, said on uh, on on Twitter. Do you, you Twitter yourself? Do no, you? No, uh, I
0: don't. I mean, oh, right. I I, I, do, uh, I signed up, but have failed to do anything about it. Well, there uh, are.
1: You're one of these people. You look at their statistics, and it says followers naught. Exactly. Tweets. Tweets not. not exactly. Yeah.
0: So I'm, uh, I'm obviously very came... old-fashioned.
1: What if somebody came and followed you, if you found that... Well, they wrote... have. and oh, they I have. have.
0: I've given them nothing to nothing follow.
1: Nothing to
0: follow. <laughs> no, I'm very behind the times. We had Stephen Fry visit us last year, and that was when I first understood the pleasures of Twitter, because he is an incessant uh, uh, yes. tweeter. And to see him having popped up... A f- this is the view out of my dressing room at the Opera House... Um, and all, all the news yes. of what he was doing. So when he wasn't here, yes. you, could, you could track perfectly well what he was doing, not yes. to mention what his alter ego, Mrs. Stephen Fry, was yeah. up to. So <laughs> there, there I understood it, but I really do have to galvanise myself. So I will be inspired your, by your very poetic example.
1: Well, thank you. <laughs>
0: um, many of us uh, really came to... For many of us, it feels like you came into being fully formed in 1999 or 1998 when we first read the first book in the number one latest detective agency series. But you've really been a writer for many, many years um, before that and writing not not just legal books but Hmm. writing many things.
1: Yes, I did. I, I wrote quite a lot before, um, before I wrote The Number One Ladies Detective Agency. The Number One Ladies Detective Agency was the, the first book mm. which had any real impact. Mm. Um, but prior to that, I'd, I'd written quite a lot of short stories, quite a number of short stories. I'd written a collection of short stories. I'd writ, written a collection of African traditional tales. Um, and uh, I'd written over 30 children's books. Um, and um, then uh, uh, things changed and I started... Uh, writing um, writing novels. Mm. Um, I was at the at the time that I wrote the Number One Ladies Detective Agency. I was fairly reconciled to to having a relatively small readership. I had a readership, but it was rel- relatively small. So I hadn't anticipated that things would, <laughs> would, would would change when I wrote the Number One Ladies uh, Detective a- a- Agency.
0: Well, when 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 you look at a list of your books, there's a very interesting. It's a very interesting thing to do because there are innumerable, and when I said I hadn't read everything that uh, uh, Sandy had written, that did also include not having read Pike Fishing in Ireland, The Social Context, or The Criminal Law of Botswana.
1: Oh, you missed yourself on that, Anne. (laughs) 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 Nobody reads that anymore. (laughs)
0: <laughs> but, um, but but looking at, looking at the list, list of publications, there's a, there's a period around, you know, just up to, from 1998 when, when the first number one ladies detective agency published, which is very interesting to look at because we go from the forensic aspects of sleep to the number one ladies detective agency the following year, the popcorn pirates, in the protectorate, justice and the prosecution of old crimes... Uh, monkey boy cheers of the giraffe and then the fiction output accelerates enormously and we see less of the forensic aspects of sleep but I wanted to ask you about that transition from being an academic and writer on legal matters to becoming a fiction writer which if if we're looking at this list we can see that occurring over a period of time yes and and to tell us uh, what that was like and how much of that was you consciously deciding that you were really going to pursue this and how yes. much of it was things happening?
1: Well, I, I suppose uh, I must, deep down inside, have wanted to, to, to write fiction. Mm. Um, I think that that was probably something which, uh, which, was, which was very deep and, and very permanent uh, in that I, I remember writing as a, as a boy. I, I used to write. Um, I sent off my first manuscript uh, when I was eight, um, it must just have been a few a few lines. Uh, I had a letter back from the publisher, which was very very kind of <laughs> kind of him. But um, so I was I was I, I think I always knew that I wanted to write. Uh, but of course, as a, uh, a writers have to earn a living, and mm, uh, it's course. it's not possible to uh, to say I'm going to be a writer and that's the way I'm going to earn my living. Now, some people do that, and they and they get away with it. There are some people who are successful with. Uh, With their first book, they write their first book when they're 21, and it's a great success.
0: Jonathan Safran Foer, who was here the other night, did he do that? Well, very well.
1: Willie Dalrymple was another Mm. another case. Mm, Uh, mm, Willie wrote wrote that book, I think, when he was still an undergraduate. His Mm. first book, or pretty close to still being an undergraduate, Mm. and and, uh, that's admirable if one can do that. that. But for most of us, actually, you have to wait. You have to wait a while, uh, because I think. Uh, it's, it's exceptional having anything to say uh, when, you're, when, you're when, you're 20, when you're 19. <laughs> now, <laughs> I remember when I, was, when I was 19, I don't know how you felt when you were 19, but when I was 19, I thought I had an awful lot to say. Oh, I an thought, awful lot. I thought I knew an awful lot, and um, in fact, I, I, I didn't. <laughs> Although, actually, there are many 19-year-olds who do know a lot. Every so often you meet pe- people who are 19, and they know far more than, than, than you know, and it's, it's, it's deeply disappointing.
0: Well, <laughs> but I think very often, though, those books that people, those beautiful books that people write when they're young, sometimes that first book mm. is not what they know, but it's um, a story yeah. that comes out of who they are and that growing up experience that has that real power. That,
1: that, that, that's right. I mean, a really good example of somebody writing a book um, at a very early age uh, and, and doing a sustained work of fiction is, of course, The Young Visitors by Daisy Ashford, which is a marvellous book. I'm sure many people will, will, will know it. Um, written by, she was nine, or yeah. just over nine, I think. And she wrote this marvellous book, the, the Young Visitors, which was over 60 pages. It was a fairly substantial work of fiction. And, of course, it's got that wonderful opening line, one of my favourite opening lines of all time, when she writes, bearing in mind it's written by a nine-and-a-half-year-old girl. Mr. Saltina was an elderly man of forty two. <laughs> 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 and the interesting thing about that first line is when you mention it to, to teenagers they don't see what the joke is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yes, so <laughs> You've got
1: to be very careful. Uh, 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 You have to know what you're writing writing about. I mean, there are some people who who clearly, unfortunately, don't know what they're writing about, but it doesn't deter them. And they... And they write a book with wonderful solecism. I read about a book which was written by, by, by uh, a writer from, from West Africa who, who had uh, clearly not visited London before, uh, but decided that he would set his novel in London. And he, re- he referred to all the palm trees.
0: <laughs> <laughs> As you would. A natural part of life. <laughs>
1: <Yes>. <laughs> and of course, people did those, wrote those books uh, about... Um, Uh, The Westerns, people always writing Westerns, uh, Italian writers, all the Spaghetti Westerns were were wonderful. And And actually, on the subject, um, those marvellous Inspector Goethe books by Harry Keating, he wrote those before he went to India. He'd never been to Bombay as it then was, and he had travel guides to Bombay. He sat down with those, and he wrote these these books, which apparently were really very accurate because the travel guides had been accurate. So
0: he had created his own...
1: He'd created um, an entire
0: fictionalised version of Bombay. The
1: the BBC took him to, to, to Bombay, Mumbai, and um, introduced him. They took him on his first visit there and introduced him to a real inspector of the Bombay CID, which, of course, is what Inspector Goethe, his hero, had been. And they made a wonderful, charming film as he went round and he saw scenes that he would have described in his book before he ever went there. And the real Indian um, police inspector said you know, you've got it right in these books, it's absolutely accurate and was all based on, uh, on, on second-hand knowledge, which that's a great, great talent, that.
0: It is. Um, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about detective stories, mm. I guess. Um, our cultures at the moment are absolutely addicted to detective stories in all media. Um, you know, we starting from Sherlock Holmes, going through the kind of the golden age, the 20th century writers to people in that heritage um, like P.D. James, and then to yeah. this crop of forensic-obsessed... Oh, yes. ..either the police procedural version or, or still the lone detective... Aut-
1: autopsy novels.
0: Autopsy novels.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> and... Um, what I'm interested in talking to you about is the way that uh, Precious Ramotswe and, uh, and Isabel Dalhousie are both detectives of a very, very different kind, so that in a way you have appropriated some of those aspects of a detective. Yes. If nothing else by calling, starting off with the number one lady's detective agency and making her a detective. But it's a very unusual, very unusual kind, and neither of those heroines are, you know... Gun-toting, um, uh, they're, they're that kind of uh, feminist detectives of the 80s or 90s, um, tough girls. But they have a tremendous moral authority, and they have a mystery to unravel, which is or isn't a crime. Mm. And I just wanted to talk to you about why, where, what you think you took from it, what kind of new form of of mystery or detection we see in those two series mm. of
1: books. Well, I, I, I didn't consciously set out to do anything mm. to the genre because mm. the genre obviously is well established and got, you've got all sorts of subcategories in mm. the in the genre. And I, I, I didn't really set out to uh, to turn the genre on its uh, on its head. Um, and I think as, as far as Mara Matsui was concerned, uh, the idea was just to... Um, really have a setting which enabled her to deal with a whole lot of people and for the whole lot of people to walk in uh, off the street, more or less, and bring their problems and their issues and talk about that bit of society that they come from in, in Botswana. Um, so it was a way of painting a picture of the country and the lives of people in the country. Uh, it, was, it was a device, really. Mm. So, so we don't really have crime uh, mm. The first novel has a little bit of crime, there, there is an abduction in mm. it, uh, but I put that abduction in at the suggestion of the publishers, you know, it wasn't there to begin with, and they said, well, you know, really, you should, should <laughs> actually have... if you have, have a detective, you have to have a crime. <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> and so I said, okay, well, we'll have a, a kidnapping, and, um, <laughs> you know, I really, my heart wasn't in it, uh, uh, and uh, But I you w- were
0: very obedient to the publishers, I, Oh, yeah, you know,
1: you've got to obey your publishers, very, very important. Um, and so since then, we've, we've had issues. People have come with yes. issues to her. Yes. But she says in one of the books, my job is to help people with the problems in their lives. So those problems can be anything from uh, a very um, mild uh, case of curiosity about what a spouse is, is getting up to, to, to perhaps some uh, issue about a dishonest employee mm. or something mm. of of, of, the, of that sort. Uh, but the idea really is to talk about the life of these people yes. and their day-to-day existence and the, the world that they live in, this, this country of Botswana, uh, w- which I find particularly interesting. Isabel, of course, is a moral philosopher. Yes. So her issue really is to deal with, uh, with um, moral problems uh, that people have. So there's a bit of a mystery, but it's not crime. In the latest one, uh, which is called um, the one which just come, come out, um, a, a, an Australian professor of philosophy goes to Edinburgh uh, because she had been adopted in Scotland and then brought out to Australia. She wants to find her mm. her uh, biological parents. Uh, so it's not, uh, it's not crime at all and it's, it's just an investigation of the complexities of people's lives.
0: Yes, and what is interesting about it is I think that you know, for example if you look at t- television and, uh, and people's uh, and, the, and, and airport bookshops being stuffed with stories of uh, blood, mayhem, buried yes. corpses, um, if we think about, uh, you know, for example, Michael Moore's thesis that the reason why people in America are so much more likely to go out and shoot people is because they, you know, they're obsessed with the idea of crime on television, that, yes. that really it creates a culture of fear and distrust, yes. and if you contrast it with a culture like Canada next door, yes. that much more trust and so on. What interests me about, about those books is that it's about, very much about solving people's everyday problems in both cases, yes. although of different kinds, but it's also about people who live in a web of community yes. that is about building and rebuilding interpersonal trust, Yes. yes. so that is it is about those kind of direct personal yes. connections between people. It's yes. about solving people's problems at first hand yes. and in a way that reinforces their trust in their relationships with other people and their community.
1: Well, th- th- thank you very much, Anne. Could you write the blurb for the next novel? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry, I think that is that a polite way of saying I was being a bit long-winded. <laughs> no, no, no,
1: no, no, no. It was a, it was a polite way of saying that you you, you were very complimentary. Um, but it is it is actually about uh, I think it is about uh, community. The, the the Botswana books are about uh, about a, quite a, a tight and, and and intimate community. And indeed, the Edinburgh books are about that as well. And that mm. the Edinburgh books. Uh, dwell on those aspects of Edinburgh which, which are very specifically community oriented where people know one another and know one another's uh, business um, and I think that's something that I'm, I'm very interested in and Mara Matsui, um often talks about that when she talks about the old Botswana ways and the old Botswana morality and there, there, was, a, there was one description somewhere of um, in one of the books uh, where Mara Matsui is talking about her father's hat Uh, He had Obed Ramotswi, who we we don't really meet in the books uh, particularly, Mm. uh, except in the first book, I suppose. We we see a bit of him there uh, because he's now, as they say in Botswana, he's late. And Obed uh, was a very fine man, and and he had this battered old hat. And she remembers once how he had left his hat somewhere or dropped, dropped the hat near Machudi, where they lived, and somebody had taken his hat and put it on a wall so that when he next went past his hat would be safe for him. And then, uh, then, then she says, uh, people don't treat the hats of others with respect anymore, <laughs> which I thought <laughs> is, is in a sense a metaphor for the, for the loss of, of, of um, uh, intimacy in, in, in human relations and, and the, sort of, the sort of relationships that you will find in a small town. Mm. Uh, we, live, we don't live in small towns anymore and we live in very anonymous cities. Um, And I think we yearn for that. We want to go back to uh, a world in which we knew the other, uh, to a world in which we we, we felt we had bonds with the other, that we knew where the other person came from in a sense, Mm -hmm. which of course you get in country areas, they'll say, so-and-so, there's a wonderful uh, Scots expression, I kent his feather, I knew his father. Um, It's it's that sort of society that that I think we miss. Uh, We can't turn the clock back, uh, much as we'd like to, you know, we can't, we can't really recreate um, that sort of society, Um, although we, we, I suppose we'd dearly love to.
0: Well, I think what we might want to do is recreate it selectively.
1: Yes, yes, maybe we can do it uh, selectively.
0: So that the aspects of community, we want the aspects of community, but not the contagious diseases.
1: That's, that's right, yes. Yes, that puts it very well. Yes, we want, we want modern plumbing, <laughs> effectively.
0: Absolutely. Um, one other thing that those two characters have in common is that they are women of affluence, relative affluence in their communities, who have uh, a choice about what they do and have chosen this career of, of at least as yeah. part of their, what <clears> they do, of investigating <throat> other people's problems. Um, and it's quite interesting. How do you think about money in that context?
1: Well, it's, it's interesting that uh, when I created Isabel Dalhousie, I created a, her as somebody who'd inherited a bit of money and therefore she had the time to run her, her, um, uh, her uh, review, um, her applied ethics journal. Um, and I suppose, in a, in a sense, for dramatic purposes, it was suitable uh, that Isabel should 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 mm. have a bit of bit mm. of a bit of money, which in fact she, she's quite generous with. And then yes. I realised that that actually people uh, slightly resented some of the readers slightly resented that the fact that Isabel didn't have to um, didn't have to work for for a, li- a living. In fact, she does work. She runs this journal, but it's, she, she's not in, in what you call paid employment. Mm. And uh, I'm slightly surprised. And so I had to make it clear to people. That she actually was really quite generous with her funds, and that she gave money to Scottish Opera and various other causes. Mm. Um, because otherwise, I felt that they would misjudge her, and I didn't want them to misjudge her.
0: How did you find out that they slightly resented? They right? told me. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, that's if you if you want to know what readers feel, you can. In extremis, you can you can listen to them. <laughs> <laughs> so I had letters, and the, the, some of the letters said. This is the early stage of the Isabel. Something later said, I'm trying to like this woman. Now, of course, you see, what I had done was I had painted her as a, as a fairly typical Edinburgh woman of that particular sort, uh, of intellectual interest. She, her interests are interests uh, interest of the mind. And people misinterpreted that, uh, particularly my readers in the United States. Misread her, I thought. They they had a different picture of her, so I had to try and soften her. In what way? Well, I mean, I was—I thought that she was a very credible um, Edinburgh lady. Edinburgh is a slightly brittle place, a slightly spiky uh, place. Um, I don't know if you ever saw um, Maggie Smith's wonderful portrayal of Jean Brodie and the Prime Minister Jean Brodie. That's what Edinburgh's like. A typical well, you know that—that's what it used to be like. Mm. Um, and I suppose the concert hall version of Edinburgh is a bit that. Mm. Um, and the, the, those people, those rather sort of um, dryly witty ladies, mm. of which Isabel was an example, um, are actually quite nice. They're very amusing company. But I think some of the readers felt a little bit intimidated by by her, and I didn't want that to to happen, so I I went out of my way to to point out the more positive aspects Hmm. of of her character.
0: She's Hmm. certainly somebody, uh, I mean, uh, from memory of those earlier books where um, it it was a lot of thinking and a lot of talking and a lot of reflection on things. And in some ways, I think she has, whether through that process or whether through the process for readers of her, her relationship with Jamie, yeah. having a child, all of those things have given, have kind of varied her preoccupations. Yes, they I have. Guess. I,
1: I, th- I think that that's right. I think the relationship with Jamie was quite important in that respect, mm. in that what I'd originally planned for Isabel was that Jamie would be a friend, a platonic mm. relationship, because mm. Jamie, after all, was the former boyfriend of Isabel's niece. And, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> and then I came under great pressure um, to let things get a little bit um, steamier. Uh, or um, put in a kidnapping. Or a kidnapping.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and uh, so uh, one friend of mine in particular who, read, who, who lives in Edinburgh who, who reads those manuscripts after I write an Isabel book, mm. I give it to my friend Peter Stevenson. and In fact, I've written him into the books. He appears as a friend of Isabel's. And uh, I showed him Peter, and Peter said, when is Isabel going to really... Get, take, take matters further with, 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 with Jamie and I said no they're just friends and then I had an interview with a journalist uh, I went down to London was interviewed by a journalist from the Daily Express and she said you've got to let Isabel have an affair with Jamie and I, I was pretty shocked uh, by, <laughs> by, by this because uh, uh, you know and I said well these books take place in, in, in Edinburgh and we, we don't go in for that sort of, uh, that sort of thing. So oh, no
0: uh, Edinburgh Cougars. And,
1: uh, yes, and so uh, uh, I, I did eventually. I, I allowed it to happen, and uh, they they became closer. Uh, in fact, sufficiently close for little Charlie to be born. <laughs> and and so so I've I've, I've sort of uh, she's 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 more maybe more human uh, yes. as a as a result of that. And that's I'm fine to see her progressing in that way.
0: It's very interesting, and I think it means that you get that philosophical mind turned to mm. other kinds of matters, to um, thinking about children and, and you know, the future in a different kind of way. Yes. Yeah. No, I think... Uh, but so, if we can... Let's go back to... If we go back to Botswana um, for, for a little while um, and, and look at some of those issues with uh, Mara Motswe, it's this sense of a woman of uh, relative affluence and power and choice, and... Uh, the, and being able to exercise that also in, relation, in relationship with men. Yes. Having gone through that traumatic, very yes. traumatic experience in Awful her earlier life. Yes. Yeah. Did, with the way her relationship with uh, 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 J.B. Mattacone works, mm. how, tell us about how that came about. Well,
1: uh, again, I hadn't really planned for them to get together. This is an interesting thing. My characters, I put my characters into the book and then somehow they pair off uh, with one another. <laughs> and it's not, it's not really intended. I mean, Domenica and yes. Angus Laudie in Scotland Street, they're, 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 they're about to get married in the next book. So I, I suppose it's just biology. If you put two, <laughs> two characters together, they, they do that. But in fact, uh, initially, in Mara Maltzwi took five volumes to marry yes. Mr. J.L.B. Matakoni. Um, it was, it, it re- really did go on. And Mara Makutsi was engaged to Futi Radifuti mm-hmm. for three or four volumes as well. So we have these long engagements. And we had long engagement for Isabel as yes. well. Yes. <clears throat> so I don't know what that signifies. But it Caution. does happen. Here. Caution, possibly, yes. Well, that's, that's one interpretation of it.
0: <laughs> um, we've seen the first episode here of the number one ladies' detective agency <clears> on television <throat> last week and presumably the second last night, although I didn't see it. Um, what did you think of the television adaptation?
1: I was very pleased with it. Um, mm. I was uh, very pleased that Antony Minghella mm. had, had bought the film rights and... Um, Uh, I thought that the first first one, which was a feature film, which Mm. was shown to to kick the television series off, uh, was absolutely beautifully Mm. done. Uh, Jill Scott, who played Mara Matsui, uh, was wonderful Mm. as the the character. She'd never been in Africa before. Uh, Jill Scott, she was by way of being a a, a blues singer, Mm. a jazz singer, jazz and blues singer in. in America. Mm. Um, and Annika Rose, who played Marmacuzzi, hadn't been to Africa either. J.L.B. Mattacone had, uh, Lucy Nims-Marty, who played that role, uh, was, was, was African. Um, but uh, I think they did it really, really well. And it was beautiful music, and it was visually so lovely. they mm. the, the, the gorgeous uh, shots of the of the countryside. And Anthony Mengele did, uh, did Botswana Proud, yeah. in, in, in my view. He went out there before he started film. He went out several times. He, 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 he visited the various locations. He, he really tried to get the ethos of the country, and indeed he respected the ethos of the books, for which I was most uh, grateful. I thought he was a very great film director. And he stamped that on the, on the series. And there's a, a, a stunningly good one, which will be the fourth one. So two have been done so far. So not the next one, but the one after that. Do look out for that. Absolutely lovely uh, film. Uh, it's where the uh, American woman, Mrs. Curtin, goes to Botswana to, 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 to see what happened to her son, who, who, d- who died yes. when he was there. And that is just the most beautiful bit of acting. There's a scene there where the li- little girl interprets with her, her son, grandfather, and the filming is just so lovely. It's just beautifully moving. Mm. So I'm, I'm very pleased. Yes. And that's quite unusual. For authors to say that they like the film version of their books, usually authors moan tremendously about, uh, about the film version of their books and, and say that nothing to do with the book, and they stamp their their feet. Uh, but uh, actually, I'm, I'm very pleased. So uh, I thought they did it very, very well, and I, I, have, I haven't uh, had any stamping attacks on that front uh, yet.
0: <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear although, of course, in a the theatre, you're perfectly, perfectly safe to stamp. Um, Something that has come about, I think, even more with those film versions, for many people, until they had read one of your books, they would have had... Many people um, in your Western readership would never really have thought about Botswana, would not have known anything about it, and suddenly found this great pleasure in reading about it, understanding it, understanding the culture and the people, and then seeing those filmed versions, also Mm. seeing that landscape really come to life... Um, this is a tremendous responsibility for you, I would imagine.
1: Ye- yes, I, th- I think that's quite right, Anne. I mean, it's, uh, I've, I've been very conscious of that, mm. and um, I've never, I've never said ever um, that I'm portraying a sort of social realistic mm. view of, uh, of uh, Botswana. I've said that I've been selective all the way along, and I've said that I, I really want to talk about the positive things in that country. Mm. And generally speaking, it's, it's a remarkable country and it's got a wonderful record and, and I'm celebrating that. But I do feel that so many <clears throat> outside uh, writers um, looking at uh, at uh, sub-Saharan Africa get very negative mm. and they, they dwell on all the terrible things which happen There and terrible things do happen. But uh, I think that that's uh, rather unfair to, to, to Africa uh, because... Uh, Obviously, it's it's like anywhere else. There's a mixture of of good and bad. And so so my books uh, deal with the the good. And as far as Botswana is concerned, I've said that I'm uh, going to talk about what I see as being very positive Mm. characteristics of Botswana. Uh, I accept that there will be respects in which one could be critical. Uh, But uh, that's not my particular job. I think the books had a a big uh, impact, I'm Mm. told, on tourism in in Botswana. And you can do a Maramotswi tour um, if you go to Cabroni, you can go on the Marumatsui tour. They've got either the one-day tour or the two-day tour. Um, and I'm not sure ex- what exactly the difference uh, is. It's possible the two-day tour goes slower. Uh,
0: <laughs> or maybe you have to uncover a particular infidelity yourself.
1: Oh, yes, yes, you have some challenge. Or, or <laughs> I think it's more likely they, they stop and then they say, well, you sure you saw that? And they reverse and you take, take a look and they'll take you they take you to Machudi where Maramatsui grew up they, they take you to the, the little opera house that we, we established there the number one ladies opera house which is a little bit smaller than than this establishment and, uh, and then they, they take you past the house where they, they say I lived but I think they've got the wrong place <laughs> but it doesn't matter they've chosen a convenient house <laughs> well,
0: as long as everybody's enjoying themselves as long as everybody's
1: happy with it <laughs>
0: Can we talk a little bit about Scotland Street ah, and, yes. and about life in Edinburgh? And as a uh, Bertie addict, I wanted to see if you might read us a little bit from The Importance of Being Seven. Which I'd, is I'd, new... I'd
1: love to do that. Uh, poor little Bertie, uh, for the benefit of... of, of is there uh,
0: anybody who doesn't know about... Does ah, well, anybody need a background on Bertie? <laughs> there
1: will be some who won't <laughs> know. Bert, Bertie's a wonderful little boy who's, who's six. He's been six for the last... Six years. <laughs> um, uh, the other characters in the books have, have gone on, but, but Bertie's actually stuck at being six. And his problems, he's got a serious, serious problem with his mother, Irene, who is a very, very pushy mother. We have a major problem in Edinburgh uh, with excessively pushy mothers, which I gather is a problem that occurs in parts of Sydney uh, as, uh, as well. We could perhaps talk about that uh, la- la- later on. But, but um, anyway, but Bertie's mother makes him... Uh, learn the saxophone um, go to yoga lessons he goes to uh, yoga classes called yoga for tots uh, where the children are so small many of them they have to be pushed into the yoga uh, position because they can't sit up yet um, and um, he also goes uh, he goes for Italian conversation lessons he goes to Italian conversazione uh, so that he can appreciate Italian culture and he has psychotherapy as well uh, poor little boy. Anyway, uh, this is a little excerpt from the, uh, uh, not the, 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 the latest, but the book before, which is called The Importance of Being Seven, which indicates that it's about Bertie. And little Bertie, his mother, Irene, this dreadful woman, has a favorite charity that she, uh, she's very keen on, uh, which sends supplies, relief supplies to Romania, and it sends out-of-date drugs and out-of-date jeans uh, to Romania. And the Romanians actually don't want either of these, but, but nonetheless, <laughs> they get them. And Irene says there's a big truck truckload of relief supplies going off to Romania, and she wants Bertie uh, to take Bertie and his uh, little brother, Ulysses, uh, who bears an extraordinary resemblance uh, to the psychotherapist, uh, Dr. Fairbairn. <laughs> Wants to take them down to see, to say goodbye. There's a ceremony to say goodbye to these three big trucks going off full of relief supplies. There's going to be a bagpiper playing. Will you never know, come back again? And uh, and so on. And so they go down there, and uh, the trucks, bagpiper plays, trucks go off, and then Bertie looks around for his mother, and he can't see her, and his mother is missing. And so he takes Ulysses back to the flat, and he phones his dad at work and says, "Mummy's disappeared." Stuart, the father, comes back, and indeed, Irene has disappeared. And uh, the police are contacted. Uh, She does get back later on in the book. I'll just tell you what happens uh, before I read this very short excerpt. Uh, She does get back. What actually happened was she got into one of the trucks uh, to look at the relief supplies. And then they closed the truck, and uh, they drove off. And uh, they didn't hear her banging on the side until they reached uh, Hungary. And so... um, (laughs) So she's, she's away. And, and in, this, in this little excerpt, this excerpt is from a chapter called The Comfort of Friends. Um, Irene has been missing for three days at this stage. And uh, she's not back, but Bertie's got to go back to school. Life's got to continue. So he goes back to school. He goes to a Steiner school. And he's at the Steiner school. And he's got these perfectly dreadful, uh, dreadful friends at the Steiner school. There's a horrible little girl called Olive who says that Bertie's got to marry her uh, when they're 20, and she says she's got it in writing. And, uh, and then there's Tofu, um, who's the son of uh, well-known Edinburgh vegans, uh, <laughs> although, um, although his mother has just died of uh, starvation. And, uh, then, um, and then there's Pansy. And so, anyway, <laughs> I get letters from uh, vegans about, about that, but... Um, <laughs> Bertie's, there's Bertie in the playground at the Steiner School, feeling a bit blue, because, you know, he's a six-year-old boy and his mummy's missing, so although she is very pushy, he is missing her. And uh, Olive and Pansy see him standing in melancholy way in the playground, and they go up to poor little Bertie. And bearing in mind, this chapter uh, is called The Comfort of Friends, Let's See What Happens, and it's just a page, very brief excerpt. You mustn't hold tears in, said Olive. It's better, you know, if you let yourself cry. We won't laugh at you, will we, Pansy? Pansy shook her head. Poor Bertie, you must feel awful and just think you were the last one to see her alive. (laughs) That must make you feel really dreadful. (laughs) Yes, said Olive, that's really bad. She paused. I don't suppose there's any news yet, is there? I don't think so, said Bertie. The police are looking for her. Maybe she just got lost. Olive looked at him with pity. I don't think so, Bertie, do you? I don't think you get lost at the end of your own street, do you? No. No, I don't think she's lost. "Uh, She's probably kidnapped, suggested Pansy. Olive considered this possibility. Maybe, she said, people do get kidnapped. Even if they don't have all that much money, maybe they mistook her for some rich person and are holding her in a cellar somewhere. Or an old castle, said Pansy. Could be, said Olive. Somewhere like Tantallon. You know that old castle near North Berwick, Bertie? We went for a picnic there once and I thought that it would be a really good place for kidnappers to hold people. <laughs> Do you know if the police have looked in Tantalon Castle yet, Bertie? Bertie shook his head. They put notices up on Scotland Street, he said. They have pictures of my mummy on them. Olive looked disapproving. I don't think that's a very good idea, Bertie. That could annoy the kidnappers. (laughs) They don't like people going to the police. No, they don't, said Pansy. That's probably made it a whole lot worse. (laughs) Olive agreed. I wonder if they've sent a ransom demand yet, Bertie. Have you had a letter yet? I don't think so, answered Bertie. My dad hasn't said anything about it. Pansy remembered something. Sometimes they cut off the person's ear, Bertie. <laughs> and then they put it in an envelope and they send it to the person's house. That shows that they've got the person. That's correct, said Olive. I've heard about that. That happens quite a lot in Italy. But now we're all in the European Union. LAUGHTER They may have sent your mummy's ear already, said Pansy. Maybe your dad just thought it was junk mail and threw it away. (laughs) That's that's quite possible, said Olive. We never open our junk mail. We just throw it away. It never crosses our mind that there could be somebody's ear in it. (laughs)
0: Well, this, this encapsulates perfectly why, why Bertie is addictive and why, if you see anybody reading one of these books on the train, you have to be tolerant of their outbursts of hysterical laughter. <laughs> um, it, he's a wonderful character and those awful, oh. wonderfully awful children. Are they horrible? <laughs> they really are dreadful. And we didn't even get to, that, that's just Pansy and of that's not even tofu. Oh,
1: he's even worse. He spits at people he disagrees with. Yes. Dreadful.
0: <laughs> um, can you talk to us a little bit about those kids and where they came from and... and Real
1: life. Poor Bertie.
0: <laughs> Blood relations. Um, but also uh, Bertie's life. I mean, I, I must say, I didn't interpret when I was reading that, I didn't think he wanted his mother to come back at all. I think he was rather hoping that she didn't um, and that he is desperate to be, to be free and to be yep. free of this suffocation. Yep. Um And the the way you write it is so extraordinarily convincing from inside this little boy. And I just wanted you to talk to us about where Bertie came from and when he's going to turn seven. Well,
1: Well, I'm sorry about the the seventh birthday, which hasn't yet arrived. I'm afraid he's not really going to turn seven very (laughs) soon. It's just because I I, I like him so much as he is, yes. he's just he's got the innocence of childhood. He and he tells the truth. That's the other thing about Bertie that he tells the truth. Everybody else around him is lying through their teeth, and Bertie tells the tells the, the truth. He's he's so lovely from from that mm. point of view. So he represents innocence and charm, and also I, th- I think that an awful lot of. Of little boys actually are somewhat suffocated by by their their, their mothers, so with with the best you know for the best reasons. The mothers uh, want their their little boys to be to to be uh, concert pianists and and, and uh, things like that, and and perfectly reasonable.
0: <laughs> yes, one in three million chance of. <laughs> Making a living as a concert pianist. So, uh,
1: but I, th- I think that if you, if you talk to a little boy, even a little boy who's got you know absolutely straightforward parents, there actually are. It's very aspirational. They've got plans. They want to be something else. They want. They are looking forward to freedom. I think all children are looking forward to. To, to freedom, to the to the point at which they're going to be eighteen or whatever mm. they, they they want to. Be, so it's entirely natural, mm. and uh, I, I think particularly with little boys because they've got so much energy and they want to go off and conquer the world and, and uh, then. But they've they 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 they've have to do they're music lessons at yoga and for tots. Go to yoga for tots and things like <laughs> things like that. So I've certainly known a few little boys who have been enrolled in courses like uh, like like that. I think it, do, it does does exist.
0: And do you think this, I mean, this the kind of the yearning for freedom is exacerbated by this more... You know, the, the, what we talk about, it, I think, in an Australian context quite often, which is that you know, that, that previous generations of parents told their children, you know, don't come home until you're bleeding or don't come home until the sun sets, go out and play, yeah, particularly yeah. in Australia, where and there, there's a different style of parenting now, of which Irene yeah. is perhaps the most extreme example.
1: I, th- I, think that that's, I think that's probably right, in that I, if, I think that if, if we um, think, those of us who, who are over 40 perhaps, think of the, the freedom that we had mm. in, uh, in our upbringing and how children have very little little freedom now. I think it's, it's really, really sad And you see these children who, who, who aren't allowed to go out and, and ride their bikes and, 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 and have that sort of freedom. So there's a serious, serious point in, the, in, the, um, in the, back, uh, the background. I mean, there are lots of forces within society that would actually restrict our freedom in all sorts of respects for health and safety reasons. Uh, for example, uh, you know, dreadful restraints. In in the UK, I don't know how bad it is in in Australia, but in the UK, it's been virtually impossible for teachers to take kids on outings from schools. Because if you go... I mean, this is just utterly risible. It's ridiculous. But if you actually wanted to take your class down to the beach, you have to go first. uh, The teacher has to go first to do a risk assessment Mm. report on the beach. And so has to go and photograph the beach and make notes on the mm. on the beach and then come back before you can take mm. children to. I mean, this is just utterly mm. absurd. Mm. And as a result of that, uh, British kids go nowhere mm. uh, and they never go to the beach. It's it's extraordinary, yeah. quite extraordinary. The government has said it's going to try and change that, and uh, it's going to force force children to go to <laughs> the beach
2: <laughs> in
0: Scotland. <laughs> yes. mm. Really, yes. something That's to look forward
1: to. You will go to the beach. <laughs>
0: No matter how risky. <laughs> um, we've got uh, a c- couple of minutes left, I think, before we want to open uh, the floor to you to ask your questions. And we, we've got to, we've got London and uh, and Regensburg to go. Um, so we might just have a glancing uh, a, a, a glancing chat about those. Very interested in Corduroy Mansions and which is and and the the cast of characters that you've brought together le- there, living in London, because I, I think in some ways um, having um, the, the talk that you did for us yesterday at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, looking about the social forces affecting people living in big cities. Yes. Um, it seems to me that some of the stories in that uh, in that most recent book, particularly about people wanting to understand. Who their relationships are with that they are single people living alone or together in in, in flats yes. yeah. discussions about where is home uh, who, you know what is their relationship with their family who what are the ties in their lives is it Is it just their you know their wonderful dog who's led to MI6. So, yes. so, so that, that whole thing about the dissolution of those social structures and what it means for people who live in that kind yes, of Yes, I,
1: I, th- I think that if you look at a city like London, which I, I don't know particularly well, I, mean, I obviously go down to London quite, quite a lot and, and, and know people there, but um, uh, I, I gather uh, that uh, Calderon Mansions, where the, the, the way I describe it, uh, contains a fundamental impossibility, which obviously I, 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 I have to ignore. Um, which is that people would talk to their neighbors. Um, and uh, uh, apparently this doesn't happen. And go to visit their houses. Yes. And, yeah. and it doesn't happen in London. Mm. Uh, it happens in Edinburgh. Yeah. You, t- you talk to your neighbors in Edinburgh, and I, I think you talk to your neighbors in this country. Mm. But apparently in London you, you wouldn't. And in a place like where Corduroy Mansions is set in, in Pimlico, you, you might not know who your neighbors are. That's always astonished me. But that's no good from the point of view of fiction, because you could hardly you could hardly write a book in which nobody talks, and so I, I made this tremendous fictional leap and had neighbours talking to one another in the. Um, and I, I I think that's that's what people want to do. I think they want to talk to to uh, to to people. I think they also want to talk to one another in trains. People have yes. stopped talking to one another in trains. You used to get tremendously. Boring conversations, in trains, <laughs> and you don't.
0: And now the, you just get to listen to other people's. You listen importance. to other
1: people's telephone calls. But there, there was, there was a wonderful. Um, uh, the uh, Gerald, Jared uh, Hofnung, uh, did a wonderful bit of unhelpful advice for visitors to Britain, deliberately. Um, the sort of advice that you give to visitors which is the opposite of what you must do and he said always remember when you visit Britain and you get into a railway carriage it is considered polite to go through the carriage and shake hands with all (laughs) the (laughs) <laughs> and you can, you can think of all sorts of versions. I, I thought of New York, advising somebody going to New York. Always remember when you get into an elevator in New, in New York to make eye contact with the others.
0: <laughs> and try, and... <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, we'll quickly de- detour to, to Professor von Egelfeld. Yes, it's a beautiful. Those books are beautiful satire of the quintet. The most satirizable kind of academic, a philologist, yes. a German philologist, yes. no less. Um, what is it about it that you enjoy? Is it, is it revenge on every academic nitwit that you dealt with in your past life? <laughs>
1: No, a not, pure
0: pleasure.
1: No, it's not, it's not that. There's no sort of schadenfreude involved in, in it. Von, von Egelfeld certainly has very unfortunate things happened to him, but, but it's, it's, it's not that. Uh, the the uh, etiology of those stories, so to speak, was um, I have a very uh, old uh, German friend, uh, Professor Dr. Dr., Dr. Norris Cazor, uh, Reinhard Zimmermann, uh, <laughs> who is also the godfather to my, uh, our younger daughter. And... Uh, He's a, he's a very tall German professor. He's about six foot five or six, something like that. Very imposing-looking uh, uh, professor. And uh, he's a very strong tennis player. He doesn't have to move around. He just stands at the back of the court and <laughs> reaches out and sends the... And Reinhardt came to see us once, and I went for a run along the side of the Edinburgh Canal. We went for a jog. And Reinhardt said to me while we were running along, why don't you write a story about a German professor who can play tennis? LAUGHTER <laughs> and I said yes and uh, I wrote the first one which was called The Principles of Tennis about three German professors who can't play tennis <laughs> but have got a book that tells them how to play tennis and they think that you can play tennis if you read the rules in the book which is uh, their sort of approach to life and um, I sent this story off to Reinhardt and uh, he wrote back and said very funny and uh, <laughs> um, uh, but he encouraged me to write more so I wrote the first book which was Portuguese Regular Verbs and uh, no, of course, in those days, it was before the books had really taken off. My normal publishers wouldn't dream of publishing fiction under the title of Portuguese regular verbs. So I have a small imprint of my own in Edinburgh that I run with a friend of mine there. We publish a couple of books a year at a complete loss, 100% loss. Um, and we do the most peculiar books. We, we specialise in books by friends' mothers. Um, LAUGHTER so if anybody's mother's written a book, have a word with me afterwards, <laughs> and uh, we'll try and fit you into the uh, publishing uh, schedule. Anyway, we published this under our little imprint, McLean of War. We, we printed 500 copies, and uh, Professor Dr. Doctor, Dr. Norris Kasa Reinhard Zimmermann, bought 250 of them. <laughs> so they went off to Germany, and they were circulated. He sent them to all his German professorial friends. And I had letters from these professors saying, very accurate, we know many people like that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I wrote, I wrote the sequ- a sequel, which was uh, The uh, Finer Points of Sausage Dogs, and then the, the third book, which was called uh, The Villa of Reduced Circumstances, and this new one, which I've just got mm. out, which is called Unusual mm. Uses for Olive Oil. Um, I, did, I, did, I did a signing in um, Melbourne, um, in Hawthorne in Melbourne, and this woman came up to me with a copy of Unusual Uses for Olive Oil and said, um, I'm an olive oil producer, <laughs> and uh, I've got every book about olive oil. Should I buy this one? And uh, <laughs> <laughs> But of course, if you ask an author, should you buy his book? Of course, they say yes, and they usually say buy multiple uh, copies. Uh, but she, she, she did. So, and olive oil does come into it, but only as a means of lubricating the wheel on this unfortunate dog that has three wheels uh, having lost, <laughs> it's a complicated story, it's a story. Complicated, it's really complicated story
0: <laughs> <laughs> the dog with Yes, very yeah. complicated story, well it's time for you to be able to join the conversation, could we have some more lights on the, in the house please yeah. um, there are microphones uh, over here on, on the aisles um, and uh, do feel free to come and uh, ask a question from one of those microphones yes, here in the red is Freddy de la Haye based on a real dog? This is the dog in uh, the Corduro Mansions books.
1: Uh, th- th- thank you. No, he, uh, thank you for that question. Uh, no, he's based on a... On a there's a, p- a boy called Freddy de la Haye. There's an actual real little boy who's the son of a, a bookseller. And I thought, what a wonderful name. So I called the dog after him. and He was quite pleased. Uh, the boy... <laughs>
0: Well, it's a
1: very brave dog. So uh, so he's, he's not based on a dog. And in fact, I invented the breed for him. He's a Pimlico Terrier. And uh, that doesn't exist either. <laughs> but uh, people might perhaps like to breed the Pimlico Terrier. Because he's a very, very fine, uh, fine dog. He's, he's, he was employed. He had a chequered career. He was employed at um, London Airport, Heathrow, as a sniffer dog. And then he lost his job uh, when they did an inquiry on equal... Uh, employment at the uh, airport and they discovered all the sniffer dogs were males and uh, they fired half of them and appointed female dogs to uh, which was a bad which move t- it didn't work uh, because all the male dogs are more interested in the female dogs than uh, in the uh, than in the contraband
0: <laughs> but Freddie goes on to have a wonderful career as a spy in he, the, he's, in he's recruited book.
1: by MI6 Yes, uh, very successfully <laughs>
0: Over here, number one. Um, just on issues of gender equality, I'm very interested that you write from a woman's perspective and a lot of your characters. Is there a particular reason for that? Uh,
1: thank you for that. Uh, no, not really. I, I think I find the conversation of wi- women interesting. Uh, and uh, it's, uh, so therefore I uh, decided in the number one ladies' detective agency it would be women's uh, women's view of the world. And, and I, I just find, I, I find it uh, interesting to... to um, reflect on what, what women talk, talk about, uh, and they do have different conversation from the conversation that men have. I mean, if you go, I mean, women, I know this is, this is cliched, but women are more prepared to talk about feelings than men are. Uh, if you go into the average bar, and there's a group of men at the bar, and you hear them talking, you can be fairly sure uh, that they're not talking about their feelings. Um, LAUGHTER
0: <laughs> they, they might be talking about Wayne Rooney's feelings. They may be. <laughs> yes.
1: So, so that, that, that interests me. And, and I think as a novelist, uh, you have to be able to put yourself into other people's shoes. Uh, so I think it's, it's important that a male novelist should be able to put himself into women's shoes. And there are some male novelists who enjoy doing that. <laughs> uh, this is going downhill. LAUGHTER <laughs>
0: OK, well, I'm hoping that you will be able to restore the moral, the, the moral tone of the conversation.: I'm told that this will pick up my voice um. Along the same lines, a bit, which is that did, you mentioned feedback to your publisher, you know, from women in America or whatever. Yeah. What about feedback from African women and men? Um, yeah. Indeed, whether you know, one of in our book we couldn't find fault with the very first time we read one of your books, and so to be the devil's advocate, I said, or oh, do yeah. you think they felt a bit patronised? Yeah. So I'm just interested to know about that.
1: No, that's a, thanks for that question. That's that's very interesting. I, I I hope that they they didn't feel that. I hope that people in Botswana didn't feel that. I mean, some, for all I know, may have. Uh, They're very polite people, so they'd be very hesitant to to draw my attention. I don't think think it's patronizing. I mean, I I think Mara Monsway could could be anywhere, actually. I think she she could be in Scotland. She happens to be a Botswana that I'm writing about. I think she's a universal figure. Um, And I think uh, think that people in Botswana, uh, a number of people in Botswana, have said to me that they are very pleased that it presents a very complimentary picture of their country that's, that's certainly something which has been fed back to me uh, and I think the uh, because they are proud of their country with good reason and so they, they say well this is a very positive, it is a very positive picture so I don't think it's, 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 it's patronising and I, I actually also in the sense that we, we we have a bit of a laugh with Mara Motswe on certain things she's, That exactly the same in my Scottish books, uh, Big Lou with Bertie, etc. I, I treat all my characters, uh, characters uh, equally. So I, I know the point that you're, 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 you're raising, and I'm certainly conscious of it. But, but I, I've, I certainly um, touch wood: people haven't in Botswana haven't really uh, felt that too strongly, or if they have, they, they, haven't, they haven't raised it with me a, a great deal. And I, I, what, what I do find sometimes people in Botswana. And this really gives me great pleasure. Somebody will come up to me and say, oh, I've got an auntie just like that woman. You know, she's, she's just like my... And to me, that's, that, I, I really love hearing that. I mean, that is really, really very very encouraging when I, when I hear that.
0: Mm. Over here. Yes, this follows on a little bit from what you've just been speaking about. I wondered whether you grow, grow steadily more irritated or whether you grow to love some of your characters more or less as you write them
1: well thank you for that question that's, that's extremely interesting um, I, I suppose some of the characters uh, when they have irritating traits uh, will cause me to be a bit ir- irritated, I mean Bruce in Scotland Street who's a terrific narcissist and who uses that awful clove scented hair gel um, I don't know whether clove scented hair gel exists but uh, I'm, I'm <laughs> It's it's the sort of thing that would irritate you, and he he really, I get very irritated with him but I've got a certain affection for them and I I think I've got affection for all of my my characters and if you actually lost that if if you lose that affection for characters I think it's quite difficult to to write about them. You've you've got to be able to see things from their point of view because I don't do real villains and it might be different if I did real villains. We haven't really got many villains in well, we had Charlie Chorzo in the first book. He was pretty unpleasant. Um, uh, and in Scotland Street, we had um, Lardo Connor, uh, who's the um, uh, Glasgow informal businessman, emerging businessman. Um, <clears throat> and, he, uh, and I bumped him off, which I was actually quite sorry uh, about when he fell down the steps at Big Lou's coffee shop, and uh, that was it. And the reason why I bumped him off was not because I didn't like Lardo Connor. I really quite liked him. He was a sort of lovable gangster, Glasgow gangster, who ate uh, deep-fried um, Mars bars. Um, <laughs> which, actually, that, I think, is a myth. I've never seen anybody eating deep-fried no. Mars bar, but it is said to happen in Glasgow. It doesn't happen in Edinburgh, but it happens in, in Glasgow. Anyway, um, Lard O'Connor, I, the reason why I bumped him off was not because I was irritated with him or, or disliked him, but I think because I wanted to describe a Glasgow gangster's funeral, uh, because I'd seen a picture of one of these events where all the mourners all looked pretty miserable and they all had great big scars on their, uh, <laughs> their face. And uh, so I wanted to describe Lard O'Connor's funeral. And they are going for big wreaths. They have big reads which spell messages out. So Lard O'Connor had these big floral tributes, one which just said, big man. And another, <laughs> and another one said, quality. And, and another one just said, deed. Which is Glaswegian for dead. (laughs) That was sent by one of his enemies. Um, So no, I I like my characters, even Irene, even Bertie's, Bertie's mother. I've got a sort of affection for her, a bit. (laughs) I can't dispose of her. You know, I've actually, it was in Sydney about three years ago, three or four years ago. I did a lunch for the uh, Sydney Morning Herald, literary lunch, and. Two ladies came up to me in the signing queue and said, I, We want you to deal with that woman. <laughs> I'm with them.
0: <laughs>
1: and uh, and they, they wanted me actually to dispose of her. Bertie's mother. I can't dispose of Bertie's well, mother. Well, I did have
0: hopes when she was locked into the container. Well, she,
1: that was all that we did. Uh, I mean, somebody also suggested that she could. She goes to this floatarium where she floats in the flotation. Tank to, to de-stress. So I wouldn't be that there could be a, a specific gravity error in uh, <laughs> in making up this highly supportive liquid, and she could sink. But I, I really can't, because I do not want Bertie to lose his, his no. mother. I mean, it was bad enough having her taken off in in, in a lorry to, to Hungary. And
0: you uh, know, <laughs> <laughs> we've got two more questions here. We've just just got time for them, so we'll take this one and from this lady here. Yes. Hi, um, I just wanted to know if you ever get writer's
1: block and how you do it with it. If, Thank, he, if
0: he ever gets writer's block.
1: Thanks for that question. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm very fortunate touch all available wood, which is in the short supply up here, <laughs> um, uh, for uh, the fact that I, I, I don't appear to get, get that. I think writer's block is, is, possibly, is possibly depression. I think when writers say that they've got writer's block, I think they're probably undergoing a, a short period of depression uh, rather or alternatively they've got nothing to to say Um, and I mean that's that's really quite a posh way of saying you know I've got no ideas I've got writer's block (laughs) (laughs) of course most people I mean some people have writer's block they get it at birth and they (laughs) and those people never write a book (laughs) and Imagine the, the 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 doctor. The doctor says, "I'm terribly sorry to tell you, your baby's gone by the <laughs> <dog."> <laughs> But it can have a perfectly decent life, If, it, it,
0: it, if it learns some useful practical some skills. Some
1: practical skills. Of course, you see, a lot of people feel they've got a book inside them, uh, and
0: and they come.
1: And they come and ask advice, and they say, I've got a book for me. Well, actually, they could have an x-ray. That's one of the... <laughs> one of the <laughs> you have an x-ray. And with modern, sophisticated imaging techniques, they can now tell, the radiologists can tell what the book's are. <laughs> they can. can tell whether it's fiction so, or non-fiction. Exactly. They say biography, it's a novel. yes. <laughs> it's, these are the, the magnetic uh, images. It's amazing. Thanks for that question.
2: That's really good.
0: I can't even ask my question. Well, would, would you, would would, 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 The man behind yeah. you? Yeah. No, I need to we'll ask pop? my question. Yes. It's terribly okay. important. Yeah. You ever roar with laughter when you're
1: writing your own books? Well, <laughs> uh, well thanks very much for that question. And no, but uh, occasionally, uh, occasionally I do. I do have a small laugh, and uh, and uh, my my wife says, what do, you, "What do you write? She can she can tell when when uh, when I'm writing something which is uh, which is." T- tickling me. So often, I mean, see, Bertie scenes can sometimes, uh, can sometimes <laughs> amuse me. So, yes, sometimes I, I, I do have a hope so. <laughs> Thank you for that. Thank And you.
0: we'll take this last question quickly. <clears throat> I hesitate to ask a question because
1: I'm the first male. <laughs> but uh, do you, did you know Roald Dahl, and do you think there may be an African influence on, your,
0: on both of your writings?
1: Right, the, the, f- the first question was, did I know Roald Dahl? And the second question was, could there be an African influence? Um, I, I didn't know Roald Dahl, although um, uh, we shared an agent. Um, my, uh, my first agent, uh, Gina Pollinger, Gina and Murray Pollinger, they actually were Dahl's um, agents through, through most of it. And currently, the Dahl estate is handled by my current agent. But no, I, d- I didn't, didn't know him. I think he must have been an uh, extremely uh, interesting man. Um, uh, the African influence, uh, possibly, yes, I think the, African, uh, the influence of, of, of African culture in the, in the number one Ladies detective agency is, is, fairly, is fairly strong. My main literary influence, I think, in relation to that book, the number one Ladies detective agency and the subsequent books in the series, was Arkane Narayan, the Indian writer, who's a wonderful, wonderful writer, his Malgudi novels, and I think that really influenced, uh, influenced me. Um, uh, in in the the way in which the number one latest detective agency uh, uh, develops and there are other influences Barbara Pym is one, Benson the humorist is another, so on. thank you
0: I'm very grateful to our final question for bringing us back from the brink of complete hysterics (laughs) not a seemly way to finish such a serious session this afternoon I want to thank Alexander McCall Smith very much for coming to talk to us
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And thank you to you also for joining in the conversation. Um, Alexander McCallsmith will be signing books in the foyer at the bookshop area just after this, and we look forward to seeing you at one of our I'd, uh, other ideas at the House uh, talk in the future. Noam Chomsky, Daniel Dennett, David Sedaris, although only one of those will give you anything like the number of laughs we've had this afternoon. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you.